Turn with me to the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 2, 14 through 41. And normally we would have it on the slide and uh, all of my points and all of those things. But once again, um, we can't do that today. So we're going to go uh, very basic as well as just look at God's word together. This morning as we kind of <clears throat> make our way through the book of Acts, um, some of you guys are uh, first time being here, and some have been here some, but may not understand how we do this. But essentially, what we do is we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. So we started in chapter 1, verse 1 of Acts, and we preached all the way through verse 12, 11. And then we looked at verses 12 through 26 of chapter 1, and then last week we started chapter 2. And now we're on the fourth sermon in the book of Acts, just picking up where we let off last week. And last week, uh, what we left off um, was essentially this moment in which the Holy Spirit come. The very beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus ascends into heaven, commissioning the disciples to wait for the Spirit. And then when the Spirit arrived, to then go. And then uh, after that, they replaced Judas, uh, the one that had denied Christ and sold him for 30 shekels of silver. He denied Christ. He ends up hanging himself, and therefore the disciples replace his role in the ministry in preparation for the ministry that was to come. And then last week in verses 1 through 13, we saw this coming of the Holy Spirit in this miraculous moment where individuals were speaking the truths of God's word, and other people were able to hear it in language, their own languages. Um, because there's many people in this area, in this time in Jerusalem, because they were from all over the world gathering for the week, the festival of the weeks. And this miraculous moment where people were speaking as I am speaking now, but they were hearing, uh, they were speaking in multiple languages uh, where they may not have known the languages prior to speaking in that moment. And there was this amazing work of God when the Spirit came upon them so that people, all of Jerusalem, would hear the truth of God's word. And this morning we're going to pick up at the end of that. But before we do that, I just want to say this about this idea of preaching verse by verse through Scripture. Uh, I, I enjoy this practice for multiple reasons. One of the very basic reasons is because it makes sure that I as a pastor and uh, elder and the other two guys that are elders here, that it forces us to preach texts that we would normally not preach. Because the Bible um, says a lot of things that is hard to understand or just plain out difficult, and then sometimes it's just hard to apply directly to our lives. And so this forces our hands to preach the things that we maybe normally would not preach. It then also takes me upon, uh, uh, beyond my uh, intellect to where I have to depend on Christ to preach these hard things. And though that's the case this morning, I would say that this is a text that really preaches itself if we just do the work of looking at what Peter is trying to convey rather than fo 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 forcing it into a nice presentation and public speaking to get some points across. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at it the way in which it is preached in the book of Acts. Now, to be clear, um, Luke is the one writing this book. And Luke is writing this book because he's an historian. He's taking up the information of what occurred in these early days of the Christian church. And as a historian, he wasn't there when Peter preached the sermon. So he's summarizing Peter's sermon from either Peter himself or other individuals that were there. And so it's not broke up like I'm speaking to you now, but it's broken up in kind of in themes. 
And the big thought around all of the theme, though, is repent and be baptized. And the three themes that we kind of see in this is the first one we're going to look at is that not drunk, but filled with the Spirit. And then we're going to see that Jesus, you crucified, is the risen Lord and Savior. And then lastly, we're going to look at how the people responded to those two realities. But for us to understand that, let's look back just real quickly to verse... Let's see. Let's look back real quickly to verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2. It says, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with the new wine. The reason why I've come back to this It's because in this miraculous moment when God causes people that do not know said language to speak a language and people to understand the language because God has given them the ability to speak in that language, that they're amazed, they're confused, they're perplexed, as it says here. But then others just mocked, said they're they're filled with the new wine, meaning essentially that they're drunk and they're speaking crazy talk, right? I think we... Many of us have been around people that get to the point of intoxication where they just talk crazy. This is what they're claiming that these disciples had done, which leaves us exactly where we pick up this morning. And so look with me. We're going to read all of it, 14 through 41 together. It says this, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Galilee and all who dwell in Jerusalem, Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on the male servants and the female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. And he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. 
You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with the confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath, being therefore um, up to him who set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, and he was not abandoned to Hades, nor to the flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we were all our witnesses." being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourself are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both the Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, For the promise for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness, continued to exalt them, saying, Save yourself from the crooked generation. So those who received the word were baptized, and there were added there that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray together. Father, this is your word. We know there is power within it to save those who do not know you and to strengthen those who do. God, my prayer now is we look at this summation of a sermon that Peter spoke over 2,000 years ago to a various group of people. The response was that of salvation for around 3,000 souls who were cut to the heart. Father, if we know you or we don't know you, my prayer would be that for us this morning. God, that you would cut us to the heart, that you would teach us the reality of your word, and that we would respond to it accordingly. God, if that be salvation or that be strengthening our faith in you. We love you. We praise you. We thank you so much. In your son's holy name, amen. So first and foremost, I want to kind of, draw our attention back to 12 and 13 at the two responses of the people in this miraculous moment. The response, one, was they were perplexed, meaning they were amazed. They really were questioning what was going on. They really just didn't understand. And it's not that they were confused in the sense that they just didn't want to know, but they were just genuinely confused on what happened. They were curious to what this actually meant to them. And to those around them. And then the other was the fact that they were mocking the individuals. They were saying, but these people, they're, they're drunk. They have drank the new wine. Because this is the festival of the weeks. Meaning the fresh, the good wine that had been fermented and all of those things. right? The, the good stuff. That surely they are drunk and it's because they have consumed way too much of the good wine. 
in Peter's sermon, what we're going to see in two parts here is essentially his response to both of those types of people. He begins by talking to those who were mocking those around him. And he does so in verses 14 through 21. And as I said earlier, we're going to kind of categorize this as not drunk, but filled with the Spirit. And so let's look at part of this. It says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. So it's Peter, the one speaking, but he's speaking on behalf of the apostles. And it's, when it says the 11, he's talking about the other 11. There's 12 of them here. The new one there is Matthias. And so all 12 of them were gathered together, speaking to the people. But Peter is the one that stands up and leads the charge. He's the one presenting this sermon. So he stands up on the authority of God along the other apostles. And he lifts up his voice and he addresses the people. What did this look like? I don't know. Was he on a, a house, a building? Was he just on flat ground and people around him? Was he on a hill? Who knows? But what we know here is the thing that matters is that Peter's the one standing and he's speaking. And he's not speaking in his power, but in the power of the Spirit that just fall upon him. And he addresses the people in the latter part of verse 14 by saying, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Now, this is a very formal way of addressing the people. He does this twice, and then a third time, he does a more emotional, personal appeal. So he says, men of Judea. So that would be if I said men and women of Columbus, like in this setting, right? It's a very professional uh, an appeal to them. It's, it's, it's not a, a way of addressing them specifically, but just a group of people. He's saying men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Those who dwell in Jerusalem, as we, I've mentioned just a moment ago, he's talking about all of those who were staying in Jerusalem. Because this was a weird time in a weird, a different culture than ours. But they would travel back to Jerusalem for these festivals, for the Passover one, but also the weeks of the, the Festival of the Weeks, which is in Greek, the Pentecost, right? And so they're gathering back here in Jerusalem from all over the world. These people of Jewish descent or come to Jewish background by conversion were gathered in Jerusalem for these festivals. And they hear this amazing thing happening where these Galileans, these dumb fishermen are speaking, but they're speaking in their, these various different languages. So they gather up in this one spot to hear what was going on. So in this moment, there's at least 3,000 individuals gathered and just paying attention to this miraculous moment and trying to figure out what's going on. But this group of people that Peter is addressing are those who said, look, they are drunk. Now, let's look at Peter's response to that. In verse 15, he says, For the people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Now, to translate that to you, He's saying, look, they're not drunk because it's only 9 a.m. In Jewish culture, they started counting the day around 6 a.m. Third hour would be 9 a.m. And so he says his reasoning isn't because surely they're not drunk. They're the people of God and all these other things. No, his response is they're not drunk because it's, nine, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. There's no way they would be this drunk on the new wine because the new wine, though it was the good wine, the sweet wine, it was the less fermented wine. And so he's saying, look, it's just physically not possible that they would be drunk on this new wine this early in the morning because it would have taken a ton of this wine to make them this drunk. So he's not giving this theological or Christian background argument. He's just coming to them with the pure facts of, no, they're not drunk. There's no way they're drunk. 
Don't, don't, don't think that. Why? Because it's just too early in the morning. Now, he's about to explain the latter part of it. And he's going to explain why they're not drunk and what's really going on here. But he begins with this very basic rudimentary argument of saying, look, it's just not possible. You would think it would be something different than that, right? You would think that Peter, this man of God, would come up and he would claim various things of why it's impossible that these people were drunk. But he doesn't do that. He just reasons very basic and simple with the people. Hey, it's not possible. It's way too early in the morning for that. So what does he say, though, in verses 16 through 21? He says, but this is what uttered through the prophet Joel. So now he's about to explain what was going on. Now, this is coming from Joel 2, 28 through 32. And for this to make sense, I want to kind of break it up this way. Is What he's going to quote in 17 through 21 is really um, a a pot. I can't say that word well. It's about the end times, right? Um, And so part of it is what he's talking about here is how the end times would begin, which was essentially the day of Pentecost. Is that after Christ would come, the Spirit would come, and then the end times would occur. This is why I would push back on people that often say that the end will come in my lifetime, or whatever the case may be. Because the reality is, ever since the disciples received the Spirit of God, they were looking for the end times to occur. The end times is simply meaning the second part, the second wing of Christ's work on this earth. The first wing was that he was pointing to Jesus that would come, that would die, that would save the earth, and those who would trust in him. And then he comes. And so the natural conclusion is that this world will not last forever. So therefore, that this end times will come and, God, and that time in between that God through the Spirit is going to do the second work where he's going to save people who look back to Jesus and trust in Jesus. And so Joel is talking about that. It, it, when you get to the first part, we're going to look at it in two parts, really, 17 and 18. He's talking about what's happening in this moment. And then 19 through 21, he's really talking about some things that would probably happen at some later time in the future. Okay? Um, it most likely did not occur in this moment, is the point I'm trying to make there. Verse 17, though, follow with me. It says, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Your daughters shall um, even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. The reason why that's important is because in the Old Testament, there's a culture there, and there's a, a way there that not everyone was able to do these things. Not everyone was able to teach the Word of God. Not every, everyone was able to do certain things through Scripture. It wasn't just for the everyday, normal people. It was for only the religious sect, the, the people that were set aside by God to make sacrifices or the people that were specifically called to be a prophet, like Jeremiah or Isaiah or any of those other individuals. And so what he's saying here is that it's not going to be limited to that. The Spirit of God is not only going to be working this certain few people, but rather going to be presented to all who have trusted in Jesus. That it's going to fall on all of your sons and daughters and all of the servants, all who have trusted in Christ. One way that this makes sense to us, I think, for those that have been reading with us through the, the reading plan, or maybe you have read this before, when you look at the book of, the book of Judges, Time in and time out in the book of Judges, it uses the phrase, and the Spirit uh, of the Lord fell upon. Uh, The one that I really think of when I think of that is Samson. 
that multiple times it says the Spirit of the Lord fell on Samson. And what that simply means is that in that moment, God was empowering his person, his people, to do some specific moment and some specific thing. And that it wasn't a dwelling of, but a power of God upon their life. Even with Isaiah and Jeremiah, it's not as if they were walking around every day prophesying something that was just new to them. It's that only in specific moments when God spoke to them. What he's getting at here is that now, through Christ's sacrifice upon the cross, all who believe on Christ has been indwelt with the Spirit of God. Now I want to be clear. Just because God's Spirit dwells within us does not mean people go around prophesying just like they did in the Old Testament, nor do they always magically do these things. God can certainly do what God wants, but God still works in the same way he did in the Old Testament, that he's not going to empower us to constantly do these things, but rather use certain things in our life to unveil, unveil his work and his will in the life of his people. And I would argue that we're going to look at in a moment a very specific calling of the Spirit that applies to every individual. And we're going to get there in just a little bit. First, um, I want to finish up this part by looking at 19 through 21. And I just want to address it. I don't want to spend a lot of time here because this is the part where you're getting into more of a future context. And this possibly maybe occurred at some point in history and maybe it'll be a reoccurring thing or maybe it'll happen again and it'll be that one time that it happens. Or I'm not exactly sure. It depends on where you land on end times theology. Uh, but regardless, this wasn't something that happened in this moment, but something where that would future happen in Peter's sermon. It says this. And I will show wonders in heavens and above signs on the earth below blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So verses 19 and 20 is really talking about something that has to occur before Christ's second coming. But 21, I think, is where the important thing comes from is that regardless of how our life ends, Christ will return, if you hold to that, that he'll return and you're taken away within his time, your time period on this earth. Or, and I would argue that this is most likely the case for everyone in this room, we're going to take our last breath one day. And regardless of those moments, we have a holy and righteous creator that we will be accountable to. And in that moment, what Scripture tells us elsewhere, but in verse 21, that everyone that calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That everyone, that when they lived in this earth, that trusted in Jesus for salvation, they will be saved. No ifs, ands, and buts about it. He doesn't go into detail here that what occurred for those who do not know Christ, but let's just say the outcome is an eternity separated from the Father in a place called hell. See, those who trust in Jesus have confidence that Jesus will keep them. My prayer this morning is that's something that all of us have done. If you're watching online or if you're here in person. All right. So first thing Peter does is he expresses they're not drunk, but filled with the spirit. And then the second thing in verses 22 through 36. And I would say this is more of the meat of his sermon. Says that Jesus, uh, the Jesus you crucified is the risen Lord and Savior. Now, I just want to say this before I get into any of this. He quotes several places in the Old Testament, but Peter's speaking with boldness here. He's not speaking quietly 
or he's not being a pansy or whatever word you want to place there. He's speaking with boldness because what he's going to do is he's going to look out to around 3,000 individuals that are making up the Jewish uh, religion. And he's going to say, you guys killed this guy. You guys crucified him. They could have easily taken his life in that moment and, and killed him or crucified him just as they did Jesus. But he's speaking with boldness because the Spirit of God is in him. But one thing I want to say before I get into this is though he was speaking to people that specifically played a part in some way or another, either by direct intervention or um, lack of intervention, he's talking to people that literally played a part in the crucifixion of Christ. If they were bystanders or they were active. What I want us to see in this before we get into any of this is the reason why Christ was laid on the cross in the first place was because of our sins. And so when he says, you crucified Jesus, I want us to be clear. He's specifically talking about those who actively or inactively played a part. But I want us to certainly see that we are the ones in which placed Jesus on that cross in the same way. That due to our sins, Christ sacrificed himself for us so that we could be saved if we trust in him. But once again, in verse 22, and it says it's slightly different, but he's saying it still in a formal way. Men of Israel, hear my words. He's addressing them professionally. Uh, he's addressing them very um, as if. He's saying, men of Israel, hear my words. What are his words, though? Jesus of Nazareth. So Nazareth is this very small town. So Jesus of Nazareth, they certainly knew his name. You're only talking about a few weeks past the crucifixion of Christ. Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God, meaning a man that was proven to you by God to be someone he was. How was he attested? With mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. He's saying, look, this is who Jesus is. The Father attested to him by the signs and the wonders, the mighty works, and you know this to be true. He's calling them to this. He's saying, look, you know I'm speaking the truth here because you saw it. You saw the blind man that could see. You saw the lame man that could walk. You saw Lazarus after he had been laid in the tomb. You saw the leopard healed. You saw all of these miraculous things. You saw it for yourselves. Then in verse 23, he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He's very careful how he says this, and he's going to be as careful as I'm going to try to be this morning. Is what he's saying here, first and foremost, is though he's about to say you crucified and killed him by hands of lawless men, and though they are the ones that crucified him, though they are the ones that did the evil deed of killing this man by using a means in which using lawless men to do so, it was by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That it was by no accident, it was by no surprise, that it was plan A. That Jesus was plan A. That there was no surprise here that when Jesus was born on the earth, he knew that his life would end in the way that it did. That this was the foreknowledge and the perfect plan of God unfolding in them. So before he blames them completely, certainly there is blame for them to have. He's making sure they understand first and foremost that they didn't do something that God didn't want them to do. And that God wasn't planning to occur. 
that God knew what was going to happen and it was a part of his definite plan, as the scripture says there. It says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. See, the reality is the Jewish people would not stone him himself because if they did, the Roman Empire would have taken control and they would have lost everything that they had. So instead, they pressured the Roman Empire to crucify this man for what they call, called blaspheming. And in their eyes and in their law, he te technically did blaspheme, but he didn't blaspheme because he was God. And so he's saying, look, you use this lawless men. My lawless men, what he's talking about is people that are not of the law, people that are not Jewish in background, that you use this system around you to kill this man. But verse 24 said, God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So in verses 22 through 24, he's saying, look, you killed him. He was placed in a tomb. It was certainly by your hands that this occurred. Though God knew it would occur and planned for it to occur, you did this. But it says that God raised him up Loosening the strength of death. Why? Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Why was it not possible for Christ to be held by the hands of death? Ephesians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him he might become the righteousness of God. See, death entered the world through sin. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 3. Death is a side effect of sin. So therefore, only those who sin, only those who die are those who sin. In all reality, that is everyone in this life except for one man. His name was Jesus. The reason why sin, death could not hold him because he had no sin. He had defeated sin, death, and the grave by how? Being righteous, being holy, being without error, without fault. So he raised again on the third day, conquering it all. Verse 25, I want us to remember why Peter is quoting so much Old Testament scripture here. It's because he's talking to Jewish and people in Jewish background. So they would have known these verses like the back of their hands. Uh, many of them would have actually memorized most of these psalms in some way or another or some of these scriptures in some way or another. Verse 25 says, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is my right hand, that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades and let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. So when you read this for face value, Psalm 16, 8 through 11, what it seems like King David was saying was, I'm not going to taste death because of what you have done for us. For what you have done for me, I will not die. I will not see corruption. I will not go to Hades, all of these things. And I'm getting into uh, his second scripture he quotes here as well. He's saying, look, it's what it seems like. In face value, if you don't understand how some of the Old Testament scripture worked, that's what it would seem like David was claiming in this moment. 
But let's look at what Peter says in response to this. Because what Peter was doing was taking uh, Psalm 16, 8 through 11, and this was the scripture he was preaching to the people. And he says, brothers, I want, to see, I want you to see the transition there. He's called them men of Judah, men of Israel. But now he looks at them in a more personal, compassionate way. And he says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David. Because David was somebody they idolized. Somebody they found so important. They focused on who David was. This is who they were dwelling on because they were looking for another king that would be like David that would come in and whoop tail and take over the Roman government. And what does he say about David? He says that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us today. Very basic here. He says, look, I know David wrote this about not tasting corruption or death. But you know as well as I do that David died. He was laid in a tomb. And hey, his tomb is even with us today. We know this to be the true. So verse 30 said, Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did the flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and that we were all witnesses. He's saying, look, it can't be about David because David was a prophet. And David, knowing that there would be a descendant that would hinder his throne, he was speaking of Jesus that would not taste corruption or death. And that that Jesus, that descendant of David was raised up. And then he says these small little words. And of that... We are all witnesses. Probably mainly talking about the 12 disciples. But we know certainly there was more than 12 disciples that saw the resurrected Jesus. So I would argue most likely around the 120,000 people that the Spirit of God descended upon. It says, look, there's 120 of us that saw this resurrected Jesus. Proof enough, right? That's what he's trying to get at here. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this to that you yourself are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make enemies my footstool. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel know Therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He's saying, look, what's really going on here, so you understand it rightly, is that this Jesus that was crucified, that was raised from the dead, he promised that he was going to send his spirit afterwards. And this is what you're seeing. This is the side effect of what you're seeing. The Spirit of God descending upon the people of God. So no, we're not drunk. I know you're a little confused here. But the reality, what you see going on is the Spirit of God descending on the people of God. And then in verse 36, once again, digging that dagger just a little bit deeper into them. 
says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He's saying very simply, you killed the son of God. You killed the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord. You crucified him. It was your work that he died. And as I started, I would bring us back to that ultimately Christ hung on the cross for the glory of God. But secondly, so that those who would believe and trust in him would be saved. Those who would believe and trust in him are those whom the sin he has forgiven, whose sin he was laid upon the cross for. So I would say to you today is that we are no different than the people in which Peter was speaking to. It was due to the sin of us that Christ was crucified. No, we did not nail him to the cross. No, we did not beat him. No, that we did not mock him. But we certainly are the cause of his death upon a cross. So then it leaves us with the same question that the people of Israel were asking Peter. In verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? I think that's where we land now. What should we do with this? What should we do with the fact that Christ was God, that was the Lord, was the Son of God in the flesh that died upon the cross? What are we to do with this? What am I to do with this if I don't know Jesus? That I know I am sinful when I know God is holy and I know that it is my fault in which he was crucified. What am I to do with this? I would argue for that person, it would be the same that Peter is about to encourage this to these people. But then it would land in the same spot. It's for us who have trusted in Jesus. What are we to do with this? And we'll get to that in the end. Let's look at what he says to these people. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They ask them, what are we to do? Why are they asking this? Because they're cut to the heart. What does that mean? I think John 16, 8 explains that best to us. It says, and when he comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That these people sitting under the preaching of Peter, under the power of God, through the Spirit of God and the Word of God. They're convicted of their sin. They're cut to the core of who they are. They're recognizing and realizing their sinfulness. And in realizing their sinfulness, what do they do? They say, what are we to do with this? And Peter says, very simply, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. What are you to do with being noticeable of your sin, noticing your sin in God's holiness and knowing that you do not know Jesus, that you have not trusted in him, you have not called upon him? I would say Romans 10, 9 through 10 simply says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. 
that by chance, if anyone is trusting in Jesus now and has not beforehand, that if somebody feels the pulling of God in their life, they're cut to the core, they're feeling the conviction of sin, and you just don't know what to do with it, I would encourage you the same way Peter encourages these people, and that is to trust in Jesus. To repent of your sins and be baptized. He does tell them, though, he says, and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, look, the same God that's empowering us is a God that desires to empower all who trust in him and the dwelling of God along in their life. So if you do this, God will be with you. But then 39, I think this is where, in my opinion, 39 and 40 is where it gets really personal to us today. It says, for the promise is for you and your children. Okay? So to those who are hearing the word of God preached, it's to you and your children. You Judea, you people of Israel, it's to you and your children. But what's he go on to say? And for all who are far off. Ultimately, he's speaking of those at the end of the earth. Those who are in Gentile nations. But certainly we would fall into that category that we're certainly far off. Not only in time, but in location. The people around us are far off. And what does he say after that? Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That everyone who feels the conviction of the Lord to the point of salvation, those who are being called by God to God, are going to trust in Jesus. And I think this is where the encouragement for the believer in the room is, is that what does this mean for you today? That means that you would faithfully go and preach the gospel and what you would lean in and trust on is that everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, that it is not our job to save anyone. It is not our responsibility to be the best present, present uh, to give the best, best presentation of the gospel. It's not upon us to give the best explanation or uh, apologetic response to questions people have, that those whom the God is calling through the Spirit of God will be saved. And all we are called to do as believers is to faithfully go and preach the gospel to those around us. Then 40 and 41, it says, And in many other words, he bore witnesses and continued to exalt them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received the word were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. So that verse 40 is explaining that there's other things that were said in this moment. That this is a summation of Peter's sermon. This isn't identical. This is a summation. There's other things that were said. But at the end of this encounter, there was about 3,000 people that realized their sin and trusted in Jesus. So, what does this mean? I think it means this. I've said this throughout the entire time, and I'm going to say it one last time. Is that what we see in this moment in Scripture is that Peter stands... To preach this hard word. Not only hard to hear. But hard to say. That this Jesus whom you crucified. Is the Lord of the earth. He is God himself. He is the one whom the world was created. You crucified him. You killed him. But the grave could not keep him. He rose again. 
illusion, the pain of death, the pains of death, the, the, the strength of death. And now all who would trust in Jesus would come to him and be saved from their sin and be righteous in the sight of God through Christ Jesus. This moment, as Troy comes, we're going to sing one last song together. And in this song, it's a time for us just to reflect on the goodness of God and the word of God. And my prayer would be simply that we would respond and reflect in the way in which we should. For some, that is going to call us to boldness, that we would trust in the sovereignty of God and saving people. Therefore, we would be people that would proclaim the gospel for others, if they're here or if they're online, it may call you to reflect on your sinfulness and the righteousness of God. And I'm going to pray in just a moment as I pray for my children that have not accepted Christ every night, is that God would teach them more about their sin, but even more about their, His grace. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you. God, I thank you for the sermon Peter presented to the people in that day. God, it was certainly to your uh, sovereign will that he presented this in the way that he did. That is certainly the case for those who heard it in the languages in which he did not speak naturally. So, Father, I pray now that as we be people that respond and reflect on the goodness of your word, God, that you would cause in us something that only you can do. God, if there's any here that are needing to be cut to the heart to be saved, God, I pray that you would do that. And for those that are here that need to be cut to the heart to be encouraged and driven to evangelism and sharing the gospel because of their neglect or laziness that has not led them to, to share the gospel with those around them, God, I pray that it would lead us to that. Father, we trust in you above all else, and we thank you for that. Our prayer is that we would rest in your son wherever we land today. In your son's holy name, amen.